Hello, this is the Plant Book Club. Hello everyone and welcome to the Plant Book Club. I am the host today because I chose this week's book. Before we go into the book, let's all introduce ourselves. My name is Tegan. Um, I'm the co-host of the Plants and Pets um, podcast and we also have today with us Ellen. Hello, I am the host of Plant Crimes. And we have Melissa. Hi, I'm Melissa. I'm one third of Flora L Design and we have a Flora L podcast called Flora and Friends. And we also have kind of on the sideline today, Yoram. Hi, I'm on the <laughs> sideline today. Um, because, yeah, uh, as we go into later, I didn't exactly read the book. Um, but <laughs> nicely enough, I was still invited to be part of the show. Yeah, Yoram's, Yoram's going to be there to kind of um, mediate and keep us on track and, and ask all the smart questions. So we have we have high expectations of you today, Yoram. <laughs> I'm just looking for my copy of the book and I realize I just like place it un under something, which is a good, oh dear. Like, pretty much <laughs> an example for how I treated this book unfairly <laughs> and uh, not finding it for most of my for most of the days. A lot of books in my house are used to like level up plants to sort of give like different <laughs> levels of my, my pot plants on my shelves. I mean, I, I do sometimes read them as well. I think but we should, we should okay, yeah, anyway, give today's name and then also Bitterroots um, with the subtitle What the They Use for, for Healing Plants in Africa. It's by Abena Dove Oseo Asare. And yeah, um, maybe we can discuss very quickly sort of how it's set out um, structurally, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, go for it, Tegan. Well, basically, um, so there's, there's quite a heavy introduction and conclusion, and I think they're really important parts of the book, and they sort of give a lot of the, the ground. And as it's going to become clear, this is, this is not a light book. It's very dense with both scientific information, but also with ideas and um, sort of like moral questions even, which, which make it a bit of a, a head full, I would say, to read. Um, and then there's different chapters, um, six different chapters talking about different plants that have originated in Africa, different places in the continent of Africa, and have over different courses of history become used as healing plants in medicine in some way. And it goes into the history of these plants, you know, where they originate from, who was using them traditionally, how they've now been sort of taken and used and and what the outcome of that is so yeah that i think that already gives a clue to how complicated these subjects are yeah and should we name the plants that go through here there's matt take madagascar periwinkle for leukemia and pennywort for leprosy take grains of paradise for love take arrow poisons for the heart take bitter roots for malaria take kalari hoodia for hunger no, that's it. That's five. I lied when I said there were six. Yeah, there is in fact that's five. A, there's two well, plants in one have, chapter. Yeah, some of them have two plants. Yeah. <laughs> good save, good save. <laughs> you're, you're right. There's six plants. I, I have to say in the first chapter, I struggled. So the first chapter had Periwinkle and Pennywort, and I struggled to um, keep up with which was which because she was switching mm -hmm. between the two of them. And although it was really clear, like this is, she would say Pennywort, keeping track of how it was used, which group of people were using it, the the scientists who were associated with that. I'm very bad with names. There was a lot of names of There's people. There's a lot yes. of people in this book, yeah. And I struggled with that. It was really 
Yeah, I really struggled too. That first chapter for Pennyworth Periwinkle, I had the same problem because my brain was just, it was conflating the two plants always. And the book, I just found that it jumped back and forth, back and forth, back and forth between both the plants too, which didn't help. Um, So I just, yeah, I really struggled at the beginning. And so I got a slow start to the book for sure because of that. And, you know, for me, what I think would have helped would be to have some, like, really clear visuals of the plants. There was a couple of photographs throughout, but I thought, like, if there was sort of some botanical plates or some just really nice pictures of the plant, I think that would have helped with my mind to have a hook to hold on to these plants as we went through. So I found, um, like, later on there was this hoodie thing that was like a kind of cactus prickly pear. And they had mm-hmm. a, a picture of it in a, in a sort of specimen jar at the, the start of the chapter. And I found that one much easier to have a hook on. Like I could sort of imagine myself picking it up and holding it and eating it. And I struggled a lot less with that. Whereas with the periwinkle, and like she sometimes brought up, well, this has a certain type of leaves that looks like a ginkgo, but I didn't have that firm image to, to grasp onto, I thought. Yeah, for sure. I thought the hoodie chapter was the easiest to understand as well, for, partly for that reason. Yeah, I felt each chapter felt very different to me. And I found the first chapter um, very felt really academically written, almost like it was like someone's thesis that, you know, became a chapter in in this book. And then um, with not a lot of the perspective of like the, the, not that there's a narrator in the book, but there are points where she describes like being at herbariums or looking at samples, being in Africa. And I found that first chapter was really devoid of a lot of that. There was just this kind of omniscient voice telling us all the stories and it became more and more personalized throughout some of the other chapters. So for me, that also made it easier to read where you were almost more seeing the author's perspective as she's investigating these things. Yeah, that was a feeling I had when I, I started reading the introduction. I, I went, I came through almost all of it um, and it felt really, really academic. Like, um, And so you're saying like it continues like that, but then it changes a bit. That's what I thought. Yeah, so maybe I should have stuck with it. <laughs> because to be fair, like it was, um, it reminded me a lot of like scientific papers, but then it just went on and I was missing like in, in scientific papers, you get like, short-term milestones you sort of you get the end you get the abstract you get the end of the introduction there's like points that sort of summarize stuff and of course this being a book it's much longer and it's like longer distances between the milestones which sometimes uh for me were made it harder to like follow through yeah and i found the first chapter there weren't a lot of kind of like sum ups of what her point was or what her perspective was and i guess Maybe it's written, like, because this seems to be, I think she's a professor of history, and I'm not, I'm not used to reading historical, um, academic type stuff. So I think they do try to, like, keep their perspective out of the story they're telling to be, like, unbiased in, in a historical perspective. But I was just missing that to understand, okay, but what is... What's the takeaway point that you want me to get out of this? So, and then I think it goes into what Tegan said about then you, me as a reader, had to think a lot. Oh, well, what do I think about this? And I gathered that her thesis from the first chapter was that even though Eli Lilly was kind of a bully about the way that they went about this, it was really hard to determine where a periwinkle should have 
been from or like who should have gotten credit for it because it's such a widespread plant like it's basically like a weed that grows over several countries and so um yeah it was difficult to trace the origins of that in a way that could give credit to one people's yeah and i think like a part of the problem was that that like that chapter was quite comparative she was sort of saying like here is periwinkle and then here is pennywort and pennywort is a little bit more isolated that's like specifically in a smaller region and with more links people but even in that case it's still quite complex the history and it's not easy to just say it's that one ethnic group who had control of and knew the remedy so i think there was kind of this like juxtaposition happening um but also this sort of statement of look how look how complex it is i think that was her introduction of like this is really complex and it's really hard to to definitively say but the juxtaposition was quite complex <laughs> complex to read as well i found it quite hard to understand like all the points of all everything that was going on there yeah and i remember the periwinkle part in particular like that cures leukemia like that's a serious a seriously good thing like some of these some of these things like hoodia is a weight loss drug right mm-hmm. which is very lucrative but maybe not like crucial to medicine in as much <laughs> a way you know what i mean and um like periwinkle curing leukemia is like a really serious business there was a really nice statement about hoodia um so Hudia was one of the, the few examples where there actually was sort of some compensation of the people in the region. And as all yeah. discussed, that was a bit easier because it was sort of a smaller region where this, this thing was found. Um, there was a and nice like a specific of- group of indigenous people, the San, who are able to take credit for it, kind of. Yeah. So is that an important topic in the book, the attribution of uh, yeah, credit or who, who found something first? Yeah, that's kind of the dominant yeah. discussion that's, that's going throughout. And and the discussion is very much, it's much more complicated. And also, I think the idea of like, in trying to resolve this, often we become a bit too reductive and say, oh, you know, there's an indigenous group who controlled this. And she's saying that's, that is actually kind of not great in itself, because you're, you're ignoring the histories and the, the, the movement of these things um, across time and space. Yeah, and I was kind of like the balance between the Western scientists and the African scientists and the healers, like all their relationships are very complicated. And like, there's a lot of mistrust between those different groups, you know, Mm -hmm. like, the African healers don't really feel comfortable talking to scientists in a lot of ways, any scientists. And so like that's a really fraught relationship would y'all say that's would y'all agree with that yes, yeah definitely suspicion all around and then also this very competitive environment where so there was people who were you know african and were working with these drug companies or like working with the, the scientists like to develop these compounds and that in itself became a source of friction because it's like whose side are you on kind of question and i'm, I'm just trying to look for the name of the the guy who was looking at the the alkaloids, Taki. So the first Ghanaian pharmacy PhD recipient, and he found in this cryptolepsis species, he found something like that was ultimately named after him, cryptotachine. And so this is like a, a big finding. He's, he published scientific papers, but that in itself 
had this dual thing of being inspiring for for younger scientists, but also um, bringing him in a lot of suspicion of sort of what he was doing from from people in the country as well. And I thought that was a really interesting example. Yeah, I remember parts about Tacky from the book as well of how proud he was of his scientific publications and really wanting to have kind of the acceptance of general Western European academic academia and that he he really um, liked to show off those publications as as a way of trying to belong, feel like he belonged to that to that academia. And another thing that came up in the book that I thought was interesting is the um, reliance of some of the countries of their scientific programs, the reliance on um, drug companies from other countries to help fund them to do the research. So in some, I can't remember which country it was now, but some of them were under dictatorships. Do you guys remember which ones those were? Um, and it, so it was going, <laughs> there was dictatorships and coup d'etats and really like a lot of instable, unstable government. And then that affected the um, university's abilities to, to fund research and Oh, I think that was Ghana. Yeah, I think it was Ghana as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found that really interesting, and I it I did like the book how it gave like a really complex view, and like you like you have said, it it's not a simple view by any means, but it's a pretty realistic view of the way of all of the, these different pieces have to connect and intersect. One thing um, from the yeah back to the periwinkle, they um. In the book, it talks about how historically the healers were using it for diabetes as a diabetes treatment, but the Eli Lilly people discovered it had anti-cancer properties. So in my mind, I'm reading this as a scientist, I was very much, well, like, that's not, that's not the same. Like, even though it's the same plant, these scientists did discover a completely different use for the plant that was undescribed before. But so there, I, there was mention that people were also using it for more general ailments of like, um, which sounded like sort of end of life cancer treatment. So like pains and aches in the body and these kind of like fading out symptoms. Um, so it sounds like they didn't have a, a name for cancer that was cancer, but they were still sort of treating these like more than just diabetes with that anyway. So, which is also like, this was a really big part of the argument as well. The way the use of language, like like putting names and putting like painting things, having the scientific wording for things is a form that has been used or even just having it written down as opposed to having spoken records is this like legitimization, which is one of the, the big problems because, you know, if you're setting up this entire all of the rules of the games and saying, well, in order for this to be your property, you have to have had a patent and the patent should be like in our language after doing our science of like these kind of descriptions. That is like deliberately designing a game where you only know the rules. And then of course, like there is this bias towards the the biopiracy, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Something I thought about a lot while we were reading this was another story that I did on Manuka Honey. And it's, a name like, you know, what is it? You can only sh- buy a true champagne from like the champagne region of France. Mm. Or... Oh, that was a very interesting topic. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, thought that was like, an interesting there's, point. Yeah, there's some places like, and the Maori people have this 
this kind of, um, I don't know if it's a patent, but they have this claim over Manuka honey. And so these bees that make Manuka honey, mainly, um, I think in Madagascar, um, they also sometimes go to Australia and pollinate these same plants. So it's basically the same kind of honey, but the Australians have to sell it under a different, uh, a different name. It's called like jellybush honey or something that sounds really very unattractive. <laughs> and so, and so like, and like, uh, what is it? Courtney Kardashian is a big fan of Manuka honey. Like it's a big deal. Um, and I think they make a lot of money off of it. And so you can easily see how like the sand people with the weight loss drug Hoodia could also be making a lot of money from that, you know? That's like, I didn't know that because Manuka to me is like the flower, like it's it's a plant, but it's, it is in fact, yeah, the Maori name. So it's, it's the plant that we have in Australia, but it's it's the Maori name. So it does make sense that they have the right to this name and that it makes complete sense. But I didn't, I didn't know. And when you first said that, I was like, but that's the name of the tree. How can how can that be a, a trademark on a honey type? It's just a tree. It's just like gum trees. Like, yeah, interesting. What What do you think about, so this is kind of, at the, the conclusion chapter has some suggestions for how this problem can be not solved, but like improved. It's again, she mentions it's really complicated. It can't be solved, but there is the suggestion of using this kind of, um, it's called, uh, Yoram, you can help here. Appellation d'origin. Can you say that in a French accent? <laughs> Appellation d'origine. Perfect. Um, which is the thing where, yeah, you can't have champagne unless it comes from the champagne region. Again, Yoram, how would you say champagne with a nice French accent? Uh, champagne. Beautiful. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is sort of something that is raised in in the context of these plant species and the medicines that come from them. What, what do, you, do you think that would work? When I was reading that, I actually, like, my eyebrows went up. I was like, oh, that... To me, that made all of a sudden a lot of sense, like, oh, this is maybe a practical solution that could work to, like, establish some sort of claim specifically for plants grown by these people in this area for this purpose, and that it can only be called a certain thing, and knowing that that's already working in, uh, in some other countries. And I think it serves the French people well to have these, you know, products that only they can produce i think it's i thought that was a really great idea and gave me hope that maybe there's ways that the problem could be tackled but is that yeah. also for like drugs is the idea that this this sort of labeling would then work for drugs extracted from natural um sources or is this for sort of non well, non-medical use like cosmetics like lifestyle? herbal remedies yeah, some of these are kind of in the, the drug to, like, like the hoodie, this is like a weight loss thing. So it's sort of a product, you know, a, a food sort of stuff as well. So it's, yeah. <laughs> or like they put the grains of paradise in, what is it, the Sam Adams ale? Do oh, yeah. remember that? <laughs> like in, yeah. So it's like a chiller drug, you know. And then it got, it got like, it was in alcohol and then it got taken out of alcohol because it was like, there was all these substances we, that couldn't be put in there and then like it's it's back in again it's because kind of so the problem i have with this champagne idea is that i think up until quite recently the the kind of colonial snobbery that has been associated with you know having to have like this kind of science and this kind of development would not give higher benefit to things that had this regional name like we we put a certain 
value in a French cheese or a French wine because we have this culture of seeing France as fancy. And I think that we haven't had that with African products like in Europe up until now. I think that's that's a barrier that like only now this idea of having the origin in also relation to countries that are not European is, is coming through. Like, I don't know if, if you guys would agree with this, but I think like European products as fancy has been like, from an Australian point of view, that's been around for a long time. But seeing, you know, similar products from different countries in Asia with the same level of fanciness, I'm not sure that we have embraced that properly. I think there's still a lot of cultural snobbery associated there. I could see it, though, not as fancy, though, as more like maybe I'm visualizing it more in like the herbal remedy, natural remedy type thing where if a person wants this, you know, Kalahari weight loss drug, they want to know that it really came from like the Kalahari desert in Africa. And that, that I I could see that being appealing as being like right from the source for herbal products that maybe have like, um, varying levels of efficacy and, and lots of similar products that may or may not work, you, maybe that are less regulated in that respect. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the, I mean, the idea of champagne or like, what is the Scottish one? I can't remember. It's like some sort of Scottish whiskey. Scotch? Um, is it Scotch? Yeah, but I think there's is that whiskey or is that type? many of the different whiskeys, they, they are very localized. You can only call it okay. like a certain, I don't know, like a Glenfiddich or I think Glenfiddich is one of the bigger ones, but like from an Isle malt or something when it's from the actual islands and stuff like that. Yeah, for me, like they're a luxury good, right? And I think some of these plants you could also turn into a luxury good, you know, mm-hmm. and especially like the grains of paradise and hoodia. And I think really like the Maori example for me shows that like this doesn't just have to be a fancy European thing that people would buy it knowing, like feeling like it's more legit and from like a certain place, you know? I I can see we're we're switching there a bit now as well. We're becoming more into like, here's the natural product. You know, that, that focus on nature and things that are local and nat- natural is, is, is higher. I mean, here's a big thing to have sold from the Himalaya. So um, mm. even though it's like mm-hmm. chemically identical to most other sold, um, but still like calling it based on its origin and it's not in European work. So I think it could be a worthwhile thing, especially for something that's more on the lifestyle end than on the sort of medical end of compounds. Uh, to me, that sounds like a, a good idea. But I know that in Europe, it it was it's like a, a a big fight because then pretty much all the people who make wine that's sparkling that are not in the Champagne region, they are at a loss, and so they they were fighting against that, and it was like a big thing in the European Union to get that through uh, to to have this sort of naming done and like this protection of these original sources. So I imagine that might be on a yes. sort of even bigger level. That comes back to the complexity here. You'd have mm-hmm. to still find the people who would have the right to have that name. And yeah, this is kind of the point of the book. That is quite a difficult issue to find who who would get to produce it under the, the, the brand name, the trade name. Yeah, it's really whoever has the best lawyers, right? Which is <laughs> the Europeans. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And I think this is also even more complicated when you start talking about something that 
is really medically significant, like a leukemia drug or like a heart, a heart medication, you know, um, like the I, poison arrow thing, you know. I, I really liked this, this discussion again in the concluding chapter about how there was like a mention of how these things should be used for the global good like they should be made available to everyone for global good but that in itself is a very colonial idea because of course like we want that now because we've already stolen it and like you know it's already been stolen and made money so like perhaps the just thing would not be to do that it would be to give money back to the people who had that resource in the first place um which again it's it's complicated right (laughs) Yeah, and inevitably someone's making money off of it, even if it's being used for, quote, the global good. Yeah, I'm not going to be able to go to the hospital and get a leukemia drug for free, you know? Yeah, there's there's one quote that says, as one African scientist explained to me, if we do not claim our own knowledge and file patents, who will? It's like somebody's making money off it and it's just going to be that guy over in, I don't know, the Champagne region, whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, except instead of the Champagne region, it's just Eli Lilly, you know. <laughs> you really hate Eli Lilly there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, they're like, they were the big ones for like Pennywort and the leukemia drug. And I think throughout the whole book, they were really most framed as the villain. Yeah, you know? I, I agree. <laughs> I also, I, did you notice a little aside that, so... Yeah, periwinkle became this thing for leukemia. But as you mentioned, it was first taken for diabetes. And the leukemia discovery was actually probably made by the female Polish immigrant lab assistant because she was. they were doing these measurements on rats. They were feeding periwinkle to the rats. And um, the dude in charge was like, hey, can you just measure the glucose? And she's like, sure, I might also measure the blood counts. And so she was the one who actually made the discovery that this periwinkle was changing the blood caps, which is, again, I don't think she got the patient. I don't think she got any acknowledgement. Like, yeah, amazing. that story is a whole other book on its own, I think. Right? I, I've got, like, big highlights. I'm like, I need to find out yeah. more. So her name is Helena. Again, Yoram, come in here. How do you say CZ together in um, it's Polish? It's a ch- sound. Chajkowski. Chajkowski. Sorry about that. Robinson. Yeah, I mean, there's so many parts of this book where I was like, I need like an entire book about this. Like it was so dense that like and it's so interesting. Like, did y'all catch and I couldn't find what page it was on after I like wrote it down. But there was one part where it was like the Boy Scouts were gathering the periwinkle. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> No, I missed that. Do y'all remember that? <laughs> it no. was just one sentence and they were like I like looked in the index to see if I could find Boy Scouts again but it wasn't in there and so I was just like well I guess I'll never know anything else about how the Boy Scouts were gathering the periwinkle in uh where was it in Madagascar um yeah, I just found it. Yeah. yeah, but just by chance, by like, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's on on page sixty one, um, where they um, yeah start growing it. When I understand it, like, uh, um, but they saying um, he would send Boy Scouts out into the jungle to gather the levers, which we receive by mail in little packages. Uh. <laughs> so weird. So why were there Boy Scouts? Where were they from? Why were they yeah, gathering they this periwinkle? <laughs> I just have so many questions about that. I I really want to talk about the the grains of love. 
um, mm-hmm. a bit more. That was definitely my favorite chapter, I would say. And my it was the reason it was my favorite chapter because it was kind of like a, a bait and switch going on there. So we're introduced to these grains of love and a lot of the effort is about how they've been taken and used as basically a Viagra alternative. So to All to over make- the world, right? Everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people had worked out that <laughs> it has a very useful purpose. Um, also for sure. menstrual cramps, though, right? It was Viagra and, and that, menstrual cramps. That is why it was my favorite chapter, because the first half of the chapter was completely about getting an erection and how the drug companies were obsessed with this. And then halfway through, there's a bait and switch. And she's like, oh, by the way, actually, this is traditionally used by women. It's traditionally used for children in childbirth, for the menses. Like, it's this whole different thing. And this was, again, a major theme of the book that identity is so important when it comes to the knowledge the sharing of knowledge she there's a huge discussion about her own identity that we have to come back to as well but yeah basically there was all this these history that you could just kind of miss if you looked at one side of of this this drug yeah i thought that was so fascinating i bookmarked that page as well because yeah it was all about men's sexual health and um from different places all over the world. But yeah, all of a sudden, they it, it was like they asked the women. <laughs> and it says that, you know, traditionally, I think was this one, I have it bookmarked, I think it was Ghana as well. Yeah, I think so. Um, that in Ghana, traditionally, the women deal in the grains of paradise, and that they use it for yeah, it's, it's a whole section here, women's health and popular knowledge. And I just thought that was so fascinating. And like you said, really realizing that if you aren't including large groups of people, or at least, you know, not having diverse perspectives being represented in kind of the research that you're doing, you're, go- you're going to miss things. You could, yeah. you could miss whole aspects that, that you just don't see. She says there are differences in personal knowledge based on class, age, occupation, and gender. But also for this, this grains of love, grains of paradise um, itself. Um, so her background is she she's trying to find out what it does. And her, her grandma or her husband's grandma is sort of like, tee hee hee, I don't Blushing. remember. <laughs> yeah. And then she finds out from basically the, the help of the grandma. I think that the, the, um, the nurse of the grandma is that, um, yeah, it's, it's for erections. That's why grandma didn't want to tell you. It's not that she doesn't remember. She's kind of like hushing it it's linked to that, like sort of love. And also for women, like, you know, amorous. Um, and then later on, when she's in Ghana, they won't talk about that side at all. And they only talk about the like female health and the child health. And then she's like, okay, so maybe grandma didn't want to tell me because she's not comfortable talking about sort of this sex side with her grandchildren. But then maybe in, in public, because she's a married woman or maybe because she's a foreigner, they didn't want to talk about the sex side. They wanted to only talk about the sort of more like other parts of the body because maybe that was seen as too vulgar. Because And it was so much about like her identity and her relation to these strangers that drove what information she had access to. Yeah, that was so interesting. And she, she is a, what is her background? I remember she was like half, African half European she's like from her mom was yeah. from Holland or something yeah and so that that comes up in the the introduction I thought that was really fascinating she also talks about the fact that 
because of her like her father her, her even her her parents have mixed heritage themselves so like her father's family was guan which is like a first people group in ghana so that gave her access because of those links then her husband um had like a, she had a Ga last name that came from her um husband so it's like another group of people um and then because you know she looks a different way because she has this this mixed heritage background that also gave advantage she even said that the fact that her name was abena and it sounded a little bit like obama and at the time like this was a big thing and like her also being mixed race that drove so there's so much about how her own ancestry made it possible for her to write the book and it's really credible when you you hear all the personal things she found out like I, I really do believe she would not have got that information just by like you know being a white dude rocking up or like you know not having the you know she's got information because of who of her identity and that's that's a really important thing to remember in science, right? How how important that the identity of the scientist is often. So the grains of paradise, I actually had some on my lunch today. So I had a little, <laughs> no way! yes, I had a little spice packet of them, like from, it's actually a couple years old. I've never tried it. And it, it was just sent to me as like a seasoning, not for any sort of medical purposes. <laughs> and so I put it on my, I had like poached eggs for lunch. I put it on top and it was good. It's like kind of spicy, kind of like a spicy, like peppercorn. Okay. So can are you, there you go. feeling frisky or anything? <laughs> <laughs> no. It's <laughs> the question we all wanted to ask. <laughs> I can provide updates. Yeah. I think it's, was it 36 hours to metabolize? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> also, you should um, if you if you do drink alcohol, you should put some into some gin or something. I think that was the way they were mm. using it as well. Put a little bit of um. Yeah, I know it's from like from gin recipes. They would call for like often you would have like a dozen different spices and grains of paradise. Where I remember being in many gin recipes, but they are really hard to come by. Like you don't get them in a like mm-hmm. regular German supermarket spice shelf. Um, uh, so. <laughs> It's because they only have caraway seeds and salt. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's not even a lie. Ooh, sick burn. <laughs> no, we so also have we also have rub and Deal, special you'll... spice blends for potatoes. So. I'm, I'm sorry, Germany. I love you, but your obsession with caraway is is sickening. Yeah, yeah. but interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it's interesting to hear about the the background of these seeds. Um, like I, I just browsed the the book while you were speaking, and there's like also a map where showing like in which parts of the continent the focus was on female, um, like useful for f- uh, female ailments and for male ailments. There's really it's it's really like really high quality data points. Like this is not something you would get in like most sort of um, more mainstream science books that you would get like this almost like a, a figure from a scientific paper. Um, uh, about these these stories and we should mention that there's like 54 pages which have sort of the sources and the references and we've complained in the past that sometimes books they have statements and i really want to know the reference because i just have that kind of itch to, to see that it's a proper citation and, and here citations were given in full which is yeah. <laughs> yes i trusted everything she said right <laughs> except the the boy scouts where did the boy scouts come from <laughs> <laughs> yeah true i still trust her even though she didn't have a she didn't have that in the index i believe her though i don't yeah. know why the boy scouts were out there <laughs> let me see if i wrote down 
So what were oh, the yeah. other topics of the book? What what is it about the heart story? Like arrow poisons for the heart. Ooh, I had a fun uh, fun fact for that one. I feel like from this book, it was kind of dense. So I just wrote down things that I thought were funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was one guy who kept his toothbrush <gasps> with, with his poison arrow. <laughs> oh, wait, let me read y'all this. Yeah. I'll read you this paragraph. The enthusiasm for strophanthus, which was this poison, right, represented in the 1889 report of the commission stemmed from the rising popularity in Britain of a novel treatment for circulation promoted by Scottish physician Thomas Fraser. His studies on a series of poison arrows led to the isolation of purified stromanthin in the late 1880s, creating its demand for uh, hispidus seeds from Africa. His research stromanthus, after corresponding with David Livingston and his companions, (laughs) so we have David Livingston in here, the physician John Kirk. Kirk kept his collection of poison arrows in the same bag as his toothbrush. Noting a throbbing sensation on his gums one morning, he thought the arrow tips might contain a potent stimulant. <laughs> Livingston secured information on the source of the poison from arrows collecting in Kambe during an expedition around the Zambezi River. So that was a wild story <laughs> that I So loved. amazing. Like, how and did... This is Dr. Livingston, I presume, right? Like, that's yeah. this guy? <laughs> Yeah, I think like I think it's sad that we were scientists after the sort of lick and sniff phase of science, where the way you found out what, what something was was just by like putting it into one of your orifices and seeing how things went. Like, yeah, it didn't, like he, it didn't sound like he did it on purpose though. He just like had his bag with his toothbrush and his poisoned arrows. He's lucky to be alive, right? Yeah, or not alive now, but to mistake. have survived. <laughs> Yeah, so the background is that this plant is one of the things used to tip arrows to make them poisonous, and the the basis of it is that it is a drug that causes very rapid heart palpitations. Um, and so that led to a lot of suspicion where, you know, colonialists didn't want the people to have access to these plants um, once they actually worked out what the plants were, because that was a very well-kept secret for a long time. And that in itself became part of the story of when when the plant became an interesting potential drug source for um, actually stimulating the heart. Um, there was then this kind of desire to prevent it from being grown by the people who knew how to grow it because it might be used for poison. Um, which again, yeah, horrible history and yeah, yeah. I don't think I can say anything more than horrible. Just horrible. Um, yeah, I did like about it that it was also used traditionally as part of a kind of um, witch trial thing where people were given strophanthus, so they were given this poison as a drink and their guilt was determined based on how they responded to the poison. And that sort of seemed a bit like the, you know, if she floats, she's a witch and if she sinks, she's not a witch, but she's also dead. It seems like one of those difficult trial situations but they also had the antidote for it right so i presume they could kind of threaten you with the the poison and then withhold the antidote until they felt like you were you were ready to be given it but 
I remember reading this part and just the um, like biochemist in me kept wondering, well, what what's what's the antidote and how does it work and what physiologically is happening? So like I had a lot more questions um, just based on like my my own background of, you know, thinking of plants as pharmaceuticals. And maybe I didn't look at it. Maybe it's covered in that plants that kill book. So yeah, I, I actually agree with that. I found like in this whole chapter, there wasn't very much about what the poison was actually doing at the molecular level and also how those antidotes were working. And I thought that was like, I mean, the poison is a single plant, but the antidotes are four or five plants. And just the fact that like working out that a mix of four or five plants can be the antidote to one poison in itself is insane. Like it's, it's so incredible and so impressive and I wanted to know more about this, honestly. Ellen, you mentioned that you sort of had some fun facts from throughout. Yeah, I think one fun part that I wrote down is the license to sell poisons and how that kind of interfered with the scientists. Um, can I read this paragraph? Of course. Which chapter was that in? It's on page 142. Trained to dispense imported patent medicines, Ghanaian pharmacists were keenly aware of other suppliers of drugs with whom they competed for business. On the one hand, there was the licensed sellers of poisons. In contrast to at most 300 registered pharmacists on the dawn of independence, over 3,000 individuals had obtained a license to sell poisons, for which there was no special training and only one pound annual (laughs) fee. Officially licensed to distribute chemicals not meant for human consumption, such as battery acid or insecticides, licensed sellers of poisons commonly sold patent medicines at quote-unquote drugstores masquerading as pharmacies. (laughs) Alongside licensed sellers of poisons, herbalists and herb peddlers offered medicinal plants to ailing patients. Together, these two groups served to undermine the pharmacist trade in imported drugs, Often cheaper and more familiar to potential buyers, indigenous medicinal plants were a clear challenge to the emerging pharmacy profession in Ghana. So I just thought it was so funny how you could become a poison seller for a pound. (laughs) Yeah. And it's amazing, too. Like, you look at all the different ways that they people are dealing in in drugs or pharmaceuticals or herbal treatments. Like, they're all kind of overlapping... um, ways of of treating different ailments so i mean even this paragraph just speaks of so much complexity (laughs) yeah so true and like it does say like people trusted you know the people that they know like that's a Mm. that's a thing so like if you don't trust the pharmacist you're going to go to these other people you know there was also a story of somebody going to the doctor um and saying, look, I've already got my herbal treatments. I've already actually treated what I have, but I've just come to you to get the injection. And it's basically the idea that they had seen, there had been enough campaigns to show the importance of like, I guess, vaccinations or injections. So there was like this idea of like formalizing it with an injection. But this person was like, yeah, I've kind of, I've kind of fixed the problem, but like, you're going to give me the injection, which <laughs> may or may not do anything. But yeah, I think she kind of ends on this question of, and the introduction is also about this too, like biopiracy versus bioprosperity and like what's that, what that means and especially what the United Nations Conference of Biodiversity decided in 1992 and um, like how that kind of limited everyone's control of this. You know what I mean? That's on page 20, I think. 
like the first mention of that. So this is this article 8J recommending that nations compensate indigenous and local communities embodying traditional lifestyles relevant for the conservation and sustainable use of biological diversity. This, which then, yeah, is that is that what you're referring to? Which sort of then yeah. becomes a more complex question about what it means to be indigenous. And I think she has, again, in the conclusion, this reference to her own family and the idea of basically trying to keep people in this context where they are like responsible for plants but not necessarily in an ideal context let's see if I can find that as well I thought that was quite interesting yeah and I thought it was interesting because this statement kind it says indigenous communities embodying traditional lifestyles relevant for conservation and there were some points in the book that talked about how um, conservation of rainforest was used kind of as a as like a guise to, to go in and try control the plants in a way. And that, that a lot of these plants, the periwinkle in particular, wasn't in need of preservation. It was a weed all over the place. Mm -hmm. but they, yeah. But people latched onto uh, scientists and pharmaceutical companies latched onto it as like, Oh, we're doing things to preserve this biodiversity and we have to search the rainforest for, for drugs that are or drugs, you know, uh, plants that could turn into pharmaceuticals that might go in, extinct because they're being threatened when that wasn't really the case and then additionally too about the indigenous lifestyles the chapter with the people the sand people um there was a part where they talked about how some of the um scientists would like to see the sand people as these like static people who have stayed the same and haven't mm -hmm. you know interacted with other communities and that they're not changing and diverse themselves. I thought that was a really interesting point that was made in the Hoodia chapter. Yeah, she had a really great quote about that. Just a second. It was at the beginning of... It's, it's the idea that the compensation is supposed to work in, in this context of people being, you know, one single people. And it, it's, again, it's very reductive in the way the, the wording of the compensation or all these, these laws have worked out. Yeah, she says, the Western belief in an African culture that needs preservation confuses rainforests with people. And that's from David Hecht and Abu uh, Maliquiam Simone in Invisible Govern in Yeah, Invisible Government. I have I have a similar quote from the end of the book, so it's it's on the same topic. It's um I am reminded of glib discussions of custodians of the rainforest that I read in the 1990s that bore no resemblance to the desires of my indigenous Guam family members seeking passage away from impoverished, albeit tropical, environments. There is something deeply troubling about equating people with environments and bribing them to stay there, whether they want to or not, for the benefit of drug companies. Yeah, that's a powerful statement, really, when you, when you think about it. There were some like little punches in there where she would just like write something that was so nicely worded and I was like we gotta have a little pause to think about that that's some really impressive yeah sometimes I would have to read it four or five times yeah that was the whole book for in. me I feel like I understood like I don't know like 20 percent of this book <laughs> like I would need to yeah. reread it and like I spend a lot 20 of time and retained 10 yeah. percent <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, I feel like I would have to read every sentence, like, write a paragraph about it, and then move on to the next sentence. 
Yeah, and I was I was trying to think of how to edit this down. So, like as we kind of mentioned at the start of the podcast, it is quite scientific. And what I noticed is that like every chapter is a thirty-page review on the subject. So they're almost exactly thirty pages each chapter, and it's really like quite set out in this more formal way. And I, although that was sometimes quite dry and quite difficult to read. I also, it did make me see the argument more strongly. Like, as we said, everything is really well referenced. And some of the, like, especially in the first chapter, she's just listing all the different uses of these these herbs and, and seeds and, and roots across the world. And that was quite cumbersome. But at the same time, that was the evidence. That was the bulk of, of the thesis. So I, I, as an editor, I could not find a way to edit that down mm-hmm. easily. Unless you just, like, had a shorter version of the book. And then it was like refer to big book for details but (laughs) yeah like like we said this could be like a ton of different books and I think like like a lot of the time I feel like these plant books lose their focus on people but I think she did a really great job of incorporating the people that she spoke to into Mm -hmm. there even though I also felt like there then it led to so many characters that I was also confused so um yeah there is just a lot going on. Yeah. Melissa, what would you give the book? I will give it four roots out of five. I think it's fascinating, so detailed, um, lots and lots of inf- information in it. It was just, it's not meant for a lay person who's interested in learning something light about how African plants have been found and utilized so um four roots out of five ellen yeah i think i'd also go uh four poison arrow darts out of five (laughs) like yeah like melissa said uh i wouldn't really recommend this book for most people honestly mostly academics who were interested in plants um but yeah, I enjoyed reading it. I'm not an academic interested in plants, but I feel like there's just so much to dive into. And I felt like it was good research for my podcast, honestly. There were a lot of plant crimes plant crimes in this book. Yeah, I, I also found some interesting people who popped up who I think will be appearing in Plants and Pets in later months. So definitely <laughs> lots of interesting tidbits. And yeah, the complexity was not just the scientific complexity, but also the historical complexity and also this kind of like moral question of what we should do now complexity. So there was just like so many layers of, whoa, that's really hitting me. Um, But having said that, yeah, I also found there was just so much that was interesting in there and would give it four very rapid heart palpitations out of five. (laughs) That sounds like a really good rating. Like, I think it sounds like um, that book is is a good resource, right? It's not not, uh, a storybook. It's not like a sort of lay person's book, but it's a very good resource book when you really want to get solid information about the topic. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not Michael Pollan for sure. <laughs> no, but it's also not Stefano Mancuso. So there's that. Yeah, true, true, true. I it think, wasn't like, like... I would... so. You're but, yeah. have we convinced you to read it? The rest of it. Um, it's to be honest. Yeah, uh, it sounds like a very intense book, and it needs a lot of like mental capacity to to fully get everything out of it and 
right now i have not a lot of like spare mental capacity to be honest <laughs> so maybe not for today but it's a it's a book that i'm very happy to have in my library when i know that i want to look up something uh, on this topic because i know it also comes up when you deal with like professional plant science context it these these questions of what do we do how do we treat the origins of plants um when we want to use them for something how do we um yeah what do we have to take care of um this book sounds like something that is a good resource for to to explore these questions and um yeah talk about these issues yeah yeah i can just say a correction right now which is uh I accidentally said Madagascar instead of New Zealand when I was talking about uh, the battle to control Manuka honey. So I apologize, but <laughs> I caught it immediately. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we reading next? Next up, we have The Hidden Life of Trees with the subtitle What They Feel, How They Communicate Discoveries from a Secret World by Peter Wohlleben. Mm-hmm. I think with that, with that um, it's time to, to wrap up and say goodbye until next time. It was fun hearing you talk about the book that I <laughs> almost read. Um, where can people get in touch with you and uh, get more content? I think each of you has more follow-up content, like not specifically on the book, but in general, like more, more stuff where, can people, uh, where people can listen to you. Um, well, I have a podcast called Plant Crimes, so you can listen to me there, and a Twitter account also called Plant Underscore Crimes, and also a normal Twitter account called Ellen Earhart, which is my name. And uh, yeah, plantcrimes at gmail.com is if you want to email me with scoops. People have been emailing me with scoops lately, which is like uh, so amazing. exciting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And also, I made plant crimes hats. So let me know if y'all want some of those. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Melissa, where can people uh, l- learn more about you or your projects? You can find out more about Flora L Design through our Instagram at flora.l.design. And we also have a podcast where we talk about different uh, types of plants, feature different types of plants, and talk to a wide variety of people and that how they're working with those plants. So that podcast is called Flora and Friends. And Tegan? You can find Yarm and I at plantsandpipettes.com. We're also on Twitter at plantpipettes, where you can usually talk to Yarm. And on Instagram and Facebook, it's at plantsandpipettes. And there you're normally chatting with me. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. The opening and closing music is from the album Green Ideas from Pine Vogue. You can find the music on Bandcamp where it is published under a Creative Commons license 3.0.